How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening to come to a greater understanding of our great salvation. We thank you for all that you have done for the tremendous dimensions of our salvation, the multifaceted aspects of your grace that have has provided such a, a profound salvation that there is nothing left for us to do except to simply accept it, to receive it as a free gift, to simply believe, trust, rely on the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, Father, as we continue to study the Word, to come to a greater understanding of all that has been done for us in salvation and all that is uh, required of salvation, what the Bible teaches about faith, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and apply them in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we're going to get into some more fun fun, controversial passages, or what they can usually refer to as uh, difficult passages. And we'll get into James 2 eventually. But before we get started, I want to go back and review Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 briefly, what we covered last time. Now, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, last time, we started off asking the question. This is the question that we're answering, the question we're analyzing during the next um, four or five uh, classes in this series. What is the condition for salvation? Last time we looked at the fact that the Bible makes it clear that it is faith alone, especially from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. There is the contrast here between faith and it's not works. We looked at Acts 16, 30, and 31, where the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul when they were in prison or in jail there in Philippi, what must I do to be saved. And Paul's response was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And yet, accepting the fact that that the Bible simply teaches that salvation is by faith alone, nothing else. You don't add anything to it. It's not necessarily accompanied by works. It's a position that has been, uh, has not been held by the majority of theologians and it's not been dominant in church history. It's a position that is often misunderstood, distorted, and accused of by 
those who don't understand it, and I think many do not understand it because it's very difficult for people to understand grace. Grace means you don't have to do anything. Now, there's a difference between grace and permissiveness. I think that's a problem for some people because they think that grace means that you can just get away with anything. And grace doesn't mean that. Grace means that God did all the work. A man doesn't do anything. You will sometimes hear people talk about, well, that's just cheap grace. No, it's not cheap. It cost the punishment of the perfect Son of God on the cross. It's nothing cheap about it. It's free grace. It's free grace. And that means that we do nothing to earn it or deserve it. Now, in the midst of all of this discussion, I I started off last time talking about there's two extremes, two, shall we say, poles in this discussion. And on the one side, there is a pole that teaches uh, right up front, it's faith plus, and that's Roman Catholicism. I had several quotes last week from a theological book on, written by a Roman Catholic explaining Roman Catholic theology. And there we saw uh, clearly since the Council of Trent in the 1650s that the Roman Catholic Church taught that, faith, that it's faith plus something. Now you also have different Protestant denominations that teach faith plus, like uh, Church of Christ teaches faith plus baptism. There's all kinds of faith plus systems. Then there, and that's on one extreme. That's, that's overt works. Then on the other extreme, you have people who have a faith alone position, but then they will come along and also say that, well, if it's real saving faith, it will include works. And we'll see that in more detail as we get into James 2. So they, have works accompanying faith, and that's what I call a backdoor introduction of faith, because they don't come right out front and say, you got to believe and do something. But what they'll say, if it's not, if you don't have the doing, it wasn't real faith. It wasn't genuine saving faith. You're not, you're not really saved. And so in between, we have our position which I believe is the scriptural position, and that is faith alone, and that there is a difference between justification and sanctification. That these are, justification takes place in a point in time. Sanctification, that is the process of spiritual growth. But I'm, I'm not talking about experiential sanctification here. I'm talking about progressive sanctification. That this is distinct from justification and that they are not necessarily tied together. Now the reason I've introduced it this way is in, in the faith, in the backdoor position, which is, goes today by the name of Lordship Salvation. It's had different labels in different centuries. In that position, you usually also have going along with it the idea that because this is a a saving faith, and there may be people who have faith in Christ but they're not saved, that this is a unique kind of faith that that they will teach that faith is a gift and that faith precedes or comes before regeneration. 
Now, most pe- most people who take that this position that faith comes before regeneration will either modify that a good bit and say, well, that's just logically. It just logically comes. And, and in reality, it's simultaneously. It's simultaneous, but, but faith precedes regeneration logically. However, Abraham Kuyper, who was a brilliant theologian and a brilliant uh, uh, he was brilliant in a number of areas. He was rose to be Prime Minister of Holland in the late 19th century and was a, a gifted, uh, reformed theologian. He wrote a, what's considered to be, by Calvinists, a classic, the classic on the Holy Spirit. And in that work, he says a person can be regenerated and not express faith in Christ for maybe dozens of years. So he separates it. Chronologically, and that is that's consistent with the lordship uh, hyper-Calvinist position, as we're, we will see today. So that is why I, I took the time last time to go back and look at just exactly what does Ephesians two eight and nine teach. And there we saw that the faith there, and this is the real problem, is what does the what does the that refer to right here. What does the that refer to? And this in the Greek is a demonstrative pronoun that is a neuter. The problem here is that both preceding nouns, faith and grace, are feminine nouns. So a neuter pronoun must refer to a neuter noun the referent that antecedent must be must agree in gender so since this is a neuter we ask the question what does it refer now there are many people who say what who try to come up with reasons to argue that the that actually refers to to faith and they would translate the verse for by grace you have been saved through faith and that faith is not of yourselves the faith is the gift of god and that's how they understand that. Now, we broke it down last time, and, sh- and I showed you that back in verse 4, you have your subject. Verses 1 through 7 are one sentence in the Greek. Now, the, the Greek does not punctuate things. I've said that point, made that point before. The Greek doesn't have punctuation. And the way you can tell where the sentences break is from the grammar. That's why it's so important to learn Greek grammar and for a for an, an exegete of the word to know the grammar of the text. And the English translators, for the sake of making it easier to read in English, have broken these seven verses down into three three sentences. But when you do that, you end up with a subject and a verb in the first sentence, a subject and a verb in the second sentence, and a subject and a verb in the in the uh, third sentence. And grammatically, you're talking about three subjects and three verbs. Well, together, a subject and a verb makes up a topic. So according to that view, you've got three topics in the first seven sentences. But in the original, you only have one topic. And that one topic is is covered, and, and if it is in any sentence, that one topic is is carried in the subject plus the verb. So the main subject of these seven verses is in verse 4, God. And you have three verbs. The first verb is made, al- made us alive together. The second verb is raised us up with him and seated us with him. 
So we have been made alive together with Christ, raised up with him and seated with him. This is all done by God who performs the action. We receive the action. This causes Paul to interject in the middle of this, this parenthetical phrase given here in verse 5, as you see at the, right at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. That phrase is picked up again down here in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. So when you come to verse 8, and you want to understand it, when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, he is explaining this statement he interjected into the middle of verse 5. And and so the through faith is now a secondary idea that is brought in introducing the means of salvation. And so it is the by grace salvation that is the topic of verse 8, and that is to, that to which the that, the demonstrative pronoun, refers. You use a demonstrative pronoun when you refer to a complex series of verses or series of ideas, or if you're referring to some a, several abstract ideas, you shift and you do, no longer use a, a pronoun that will agree in gender because now you're talking about several ideas. And so the that refers to the entire concept of the first seven verses, the by grace salvation. That is not of yourselves, it's that grace salvation that's a gift of God, not a result of works. So that brings in another important idea, and that is that faith is seen as being opposite to works. Now the reason I say that is because this is a difficult thing for many people to understand sometimes. Wait a minute. Having trouble getting the computer to shift programs here. I guess I froze it up. Okay. I don't know what I did. Okay. There. Um, Many people have trouble with this because they think, well, isn't that faith? You do that. You make a decision. Isn't that some kind of a work? See, Acts 16, 30, the... Philippian jailer said, what must I do? See, don't I do something? And at John 6, uh, Jesus is asked, Jesus says, this is the work my father requires of him, of you, that you, that you believe in me. So in John 6, it seems like Jesus identifies faith as a work, but in Ephesians 2, it's, it's not a work. How, how do we resolve that? Well, we have to understand that in passages like Acts 16.30 and in John 6, when work is used, it's used in a real generic sense. But when you get over into passages like Ephesians 2.8.9 and Titus 3.5, where it's not by works of righteousness, what we're talking about here is doing something that merits God's blessing. Doing something that merits God's blessing. Words like do and work are very generic terms, and it's only when you look at a context that you can break it down and realize that sometimes it's just you, you, you make a decision. It is something you do, but it's not a meritorious doing. It, the merit isn't in your doing. The merit resides in the cross of Christ. The merit 
is what Jesus performed on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sins. We don't do something to merit it. We don't do something to earn it or to deserve it. It is a free gift. So from Ephesians 2, last time we saw that the emphasis is on faith, uh, faith as a that, that faith is not a work, it is not meritorious, it is not a gift, uh, a gift from God, and that faith it does not precede regeneration. When we go back and we look at that again, we see, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the means by which you go from an unsaved condition to a saved condition. If I say... If I say that I am, uh, if I am going to go to Texas next week by airplane, what comes first, my getting on the airplane or my getting to Texas? Well, we all hope my getting on the airplane comes first. See, the means always precedes the destination, and the destination is salvation, and we're saved by grace through faith. So the faith precedes the salvation. Faith comes before regeneration. We must believe before we are, we are saved. Now, let's go to the next question that is raised here, and that is the question of what is the relationship then of faith to works? What is the relationship of faith to works? There are three positions that have been stated that you're going to run into from different people. The first is a position that we hold, and that is justification equals faith minus works. No works are involved at all. Either you don't have to do anything to either, to either gain salvation or to maintain salvation or to demonstrate salvation. The second position is what I call faith plus works, the overt position that uh, is the Roman Catholic position and other positions, the faith plus something, and the, the overt position, and then the covert position, justification is faith plus works as the necessary as the necessary result. Now, to get into this and to give you a chance to, to maybe put some flesh and blood on this thing historically, See, this argument didn't crop up yesterday. It's not something that was invented by, by John MacArthur or John Stott or one of the other Reformed theologians in the, in the, back in the uh, 1960s or 1970s. It has deep historical roots, and I think that a brief look at the history behind this will help you understand how this fits in the overall flow of of history and the overall flow of ideas and where and what what has influenced this. See, my, my basic point here is that theology theology, as I've said before, is like a seamless garment. Our, it's it's that there everything connects. Everything is integrally related in a good systematic theology. Now, some people think, to, and today you, you don't have that. You have all kinds of eclectic theologies. But any time, any, one, one guy uses an analogy recently, calls it spreadsheet theology. And I don't know how familiar you are with spreadsheets, but if you change one thing in a spreadsheet, everything else changes. And that's, that's a good illustration because 
if you just if you tweak your understanding as we've studied on Sunday morning in First John, if you tweak your understanding of the person of Christ so that he's not fully divine, that affects your whole view of the Christian life. It's also going to affect eschatology, your view of prophecy. It's going to affect your view of salvation. It, it, it should affect a number of other things. You can't change one element, no matter how minor, without it somehow affecting other areas in your theological system. And so historically, we're going to go back to, to one of the earliest, clearest statements of this, and that was by a man called Augustine, or if you're from a Roman Catholic background, Augustine of Hippo. He was Roman Catholic. Uh, he's really key Roman Catholic thinker. He precedes overt Roman Catholicism by uh, a couple of centuries, but some people would say he is the father of both uh, Roman Catholic theology and some elements of Protestant theology, and depending on what you're talking about, there's a lot of truth there. He's so early in church history that he is he is foundational to much uh, later theology, and he is the foundation and anchor for almost all of the theology in the Middle Ages. If you haven't listened to the tapes that we have available on church history, you should. But between the Apostle Paul and the Reformation in in uh, 1517, there you can organize that whole history under the, what I call the four A's. Of theologians, you have Augustine, Anselm, uh, Abelard, and Aquinas. These are the big four in uh, medieval theology, and Augustine is considered by many to be the greatest theologian between the Apostle Paul and the Reformation. If you were, if you did any theology, any Bible study after the fourth century, you could not do it without studying Augustine. He was that monumental. And he is also determinative in the theology of the Reformation because Luther, Martin Luther, who is the, here's a, here's an old picture of Augustine here. See, they didn't have artists around, so that's just a depiction of, of uh, him writing. But Martin Luther, who is the uh, founder of the, and the in, and initiator of the Protestant Reformation, was an Augustinian monk. He was in a in a monastic order, the Order of the Augustinians, and therefore he read Augustine. And it was his reading of Augustine that led him to fully appreciate that man was totally depraved. Total depravity does not mean that man is as bad as he can be, but the word total means that man in every element of his being, in every element of the soul, his mentality, his uh, volition, his conscience, that in every element of his being, he has been affected by sin. He is depraved. He has been distorted from what God intended in every area of his thinking. He no longer, he may, st- he has, still has volition, but he doesn't have free will in the same sense that Adam had free will, because Adam had a will that was unhindered by a sin nature. We're born with a sin nature and a predisposition to sin, so that means that we have a uh, a hindered will. Now, I don't think that uh, the way uh, Luther went with his book, Bondage of the Will, and Calvin and his treatment went too far, that man in total depravity can't do anything, and they call that total inability. Man can't even express positive volition, and that's going too far in the other direction. But uh, Luther understood the doctrine of total depravity, and as he understood that, he realized that if man is this depraved, then just 
buying, paying for penance, offering penance, uh, buying indulgences, uh, as Tetzel went through, uh, went through Wittenberg selling indulgences so people could spring their loved ones out of purgatory. He knew that that was too shallow an approach. And he wanted to debate the issue, so he nailed 90, 95 debating points or theses on the uh, local bulletin board, which in those days was the front door of the church. So when he, on October 31st, 1517, he nails his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. He initiates a revolution that, that just reverberates down to the present time. It is the most significant event in history next to the cross. We would not be here if he had not done that. That is a foundational event that reverberates through history. But, but Luther at that point in 1517 still had not come to a place where he really understood justification, even though he was saying justification by faith alone. He had not understood it completely. See, in, in Roman Catholicism, in Roman Catholicism, justification isn't what I have taught as a something that occurs in a point in time when you express faith alone in Christ alone, justification is a process. So justification, we'll put an arrow up here, justification is a process, and sanctification is a process. And you are justified and sanctified by partaking in the sacraments. And in the sacraments you receive grace. And if you get enough grace, then you can merit salvation or merit the merit of Christ, technically. But justification and sanctification are, is a process. So the only, so you are progressively, by good deeds, you become progressively justified. You become progressively justified so that sanctification, that is, spiritual growth, then becomes the the uh, the the evidence of your justification. You see what I'm saying? So how do you know if you if you're a Roman Catholic? How do you know if you're justified or being justified? It's by the evidence of spiritual growth in your life. And this was the this was the Roman Catholic view and the view that uh, that uh, Luther held until his right hand man by the name of Philip Melanchthon. And there's his picture up on the screen. Philip Melanchthon was a system, was really the systematizer of Lutheran theology. Luther, like many founders, you know, if you read Luther, Luther did not have it all together. Luther moved, but he was light years ahead of where he had been before he was saved. But there are a lot of problems still in Lutheran theology, but the battlefield, as Luther himself said, if you don't arm and defend the fortress at the point at which the enemy is attacking, then you're going to lose the battle. And the point that Luther was making is that the battle, the battle at that time, the battle at that time was over salvation. How is a person saved? And so they're, they're trying to understand that, and so he comes up with the concept of justification by faith alone. Now what, what Melanchthon provided was the idea that justification is positional. It is forensic. Here is, that's a key term. 
You know, you, you hear today about forensic medicine and forensic science. What are they talking about? They're talking about medicine and science that relates to the judicial system, relates to discovery of crime and who committed the crime. Forensic has to do with that which is has to do with the justice system. So when we talk about justification as being forensic, it's forensic in the sense that it is a declaration from the Supreme Court of Heaven. It happens in a point of time you are not Here's the difference. Up here in Roman Catholic theology, you were made righteous. You're made righteous through the sacraments. But in forensic justification, you are declared righteous. That's the key word. You're declared righteous in a moment in time. And so Luther understood from Melanchthon, finally understood the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and it was a punctiliar justification, a forensic justification. You're not justified because of what's going on in your life. Now, as we, that's just kind of an overview, so let's go back and cap it off and break it down in some key points. Point number one, you go back to Augustine. The first three points are going to deal with Augustine. Augustine began his life with a literal interpretation of Scripture as a premillennialist. Now, what I'm going to show you here is how theology matters. We live in an age where you have been brainwashed by a cosmic system that says theology doesn't matter. And I'm not just talking about that doctrine matters because it gives you application in life. If you approach doctrine with the perspective that this helps me live life, you're approaching it from a cosmic viewpoint of pragmatism. You know, theology doesn't matter because it makes your life work. Theology matters because this is how God thinks. And you have to think like God thinks or you're going to be divorced from reality. And they call people like that neurotic or psychotic. So by that definition, everybody's crazy. So I guess the psychologists are right. But you have to understand that theology matters and one little move changes everything. So Augustine began in his early career with a literal interpretation of Scripture. He, and that was what characterized the early church in the first three centuries, with the exception of a guy who came up in uh, a brilliant man. He, did, he contributed some positive things in church history, but, but he contributed a lot of bad things as well, a man by the name of Origen, and he held to an allegorical interpretation. Now, the difference is a literal interpretation interprets the Scripture in the same way you would interpret uh, instructions to um, put a computer together or instructions on... Uh, how to fill out your income tax form, or whatever it would be. It's a literal interpretation that it's interpreted in the light of grammar. It's interpreted in the light of the historical situation. It's interpreted as if these things actually happen in history. Allegory, on the other hand, the events don't actually happen in history. Real and true allegory is like uh, the parable of the prodigal son. You're just teaching idealized images, and they did not have to necessarily happen in real time, in space-time history. They just, the stories are just there for their moral value. Sound familiar? That's how most people want to interpret the scripture. Is it just, it's, it's allegory. Now, Augustine, Augustine ran into a little bit of a problem because. 
he, he had always held to a literal interpretation, and that led him to be a premillennialist. This is point one. He began with a literal interpretation of Scripture as a premillennialist. And by that I mean he understood that Jesus Christ would come before the millennium and he would reign on the earth for a thousand years. He understood that from a literal interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, that the thousand years meant a thousand years of 365 days. Now, the problem was that in Augustine's day, this is point number two, that Augustine reacted to the materialistic interpretation of the millennium in his day. There, there was a there was a self-righteous group that dominated North Africa. He was in Hippo in Carthage, Old Carthage in North Africa. And there had been a tremendous persecution under the Emperor Diocletian a few years before. And many Christians were, were, um, were imprisoned and were tortured. And those that recanted of their faith... Uh, later wanted to come back to church, come back to Bible class, get come back, and and the Donatists said, no, if you recanted, if you if you uh, recanted of your faith under pressure, you're not really saved, so you can't come back to church. And uh, the Augustine and the more Roman-oriented group rejected that, but the Donatists, that's what they were called, Donatists, and they were um, after one of their le- leaders. Uh, they did not believe they they were all premillennial, and but they held a very materialistic view, and so every year they would have a almost like an orgy, just a big drunken party, to celebrate the fact that Jesus was going to come back eventually, and they were going to be in the millennium, and it was just going to be one big, big celebration. They had this uh, very material view of the of the millennium that was um, that was too fleshly for Augustine. So he reacted to that. He reacted to some other ideas that they had, and he threw out a literal millennium, and he adopted an, not an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, but a typological interpretation. He emphasized that the numbers, see, in an allegory, that, like I said, the actual history didn't happen. So he still believes that, that the Bible teaches real history, but that when it comes to prophecy... And you have figures like a thousand that this really is just a type. It's just sort of, it's just a symbol and it represents something that will happen. And so he was able to split the kingdom into an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom. And so this entire period while on while on on earth is is really the rule of Christ in heaven. And so what's going on, on on the earth now is is the, down here you have the type, up in heaven you have the antitype, and this is, and we were presently in the kingdom. The word amillennium, as we've gone over before, is a word that means no, no actual millennium. It's just become spiritual. Now, you're wondering, what does this have to do with salvation? Okay, point number one, Augustine began with a literal interpretation of Scripture as a pre-mill. Point two, he reacted to the materialistic interpretation of millennialism in his day. And point number three, he adopted a typological hermeneutic, which in effect made the 1,000 years non-literal or non-effective. 
Now, this happens in his eschatology, in his prophecy. Now, this is why all these things matter. Because under point number four, it changed his interpretation of Matthew. Uh, I don't have it up here on the board. Uh, Matthew 24.13. In Matthew 24.13 we read, But he who endures to the end shall be saved. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Well, if you look at Matthew 24, Matthew 24 is the Olivet Discourse when Jesus is answering the question from the disciples, What will be the signs of your coming? And he goes through the signs of his coming, which relate to the tribulation, what's going to take place in Daniel's 70th week. And Jesus then says, but those who endure to the end, to the end of what? To the end of the tribulation will be saved. Now, what does he mean by saved? Does he mean saved so that you're saved from the penalty of hell? Or does he mean saved so that you're delivered from the judgments at the end of the tribulation to go into the millennial kingdom? See, if you hold a amill view and there's no millennium, this is what history looks like. You're at the cross, you go through church, the, the church age, and then at the end of the church age, Jesus comes back at the second coming, and then you have, have the uh, great white throne judgment. So if you endure to the end, that is, if you endure to the end of your life, then you'll be saved at the great white throne judgment. That's what happens in Augustine's theology. Because he goes, Amil, he's forced to interpret salvation in Matthew 20. 4.13 as being uh, saved from eternal condemnation. Now that's important because in Augustine's theology, this is the wonder of computers today, Augustine refers to Matthew 24.13 more than he does any other verse in Scripture. This becomes foundational in his theology. And his theology becomes foundational to the entire Middle Ages. And it's foundational in many ways to Luther and to Calvin in, in the Protestant Reformation. So what I'm trying to show you is where these thing, ideas come from and that shifts in theology uh, matter. And when you hold a certain positions, everything's logically consistent. In premillennialism, you have the church age, the, the church age, and then you have it ends with the seven-year tribulation, and that Jesus is describing this seven-year tribulation. He says, those who endure to the end will be delivered. And it's talking about physical deliverance. The word sozo, as we have seen many times, doesn't simply mean saved from eternal condemnation, saved to go into heaven. In many cases in the Bible, it has the idea of physical deliverance. It can mean health. It can be equivalent to healing. Uh, Sozo is used when you're healed from a disease. So this is a, a literal, consistent literal interpretation would take Sozo in Matthew uh, 24:13 to refer to uh, physical deliverance surviving the tribulation. Augustine said it meant enduring or persevering to the end in your Christian life, then you would be saved from eternal condemnation. That gave birth to a doctrine if you if you endure or if you persevere to the end you will be saved that came, gave birth to a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints and in five point calvinism you have an acronym tulip and the p in tulip 
is the P for perseverance of the saints. And that is the idea that if you are truly saved, you will continue to live that Christian, that, that spiritual life until the end of your life, and then you will be saved. And that takes us right back to what? Let's roll the scroll back here. This is where we get this progressive justification and progressive sanctification idea. The person who perseveres and keeps at it all the way to the end is the one then that is saved. But if you don't persevere, then you weren't really saved. So under point number four, this affected Augustine's understanding of Matthew 24:13. Point number five, as I've stated already, at the time of the Reformation, Luther uh, didn't originally understand forensic justification, but within ten years he understood it from the teaching of, uh, of his sidekick, uh, Philip Melanchthon. And he understood that a man is declared righteous, he is not made righteous. Now, point number six. This is the position that Jean Calvin, or we know him as John Calvin, this is the position that Calvin took. This is point number six now. This is the position that Calvin took in the first edition of his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion. He wrote the Institutes initially for King Francis I of, of, uh, of France in order to explain Protestant theology. It was a very small book. You know, I've got it at home, and it's two big volumes now. But in the first edition, it was very short. And in the first edition that came out in 1536, Calvin held to the position of, justi- uh, of, of true forensic justification that it's separated from, uh, from sanctification. Now, having said all that, why is this important? You're thinking this is an interesting lesson, but how does this matter? Well, in the 1630s, in the, in our, excuse me, in the 1530s, the Catholics launched a counterattack to the, to the Reformation that's called the Counter-Reformation. That began in the 1530s, and in 1545 to 1563, let me uh, scroll this up a little bit, and we'll put a little timeline on here. Here's the 16th century, 1500 to 1600. Remember, it's 1610 when uh, the settlers go to Jamestown in Virginia, in um, or somewhere thereabouts. In 1517, Martin Luther begins the Protestant Reformation. It's somewhere in the late—I don't have the exact date—but it's the late 1520s or early 15, 15, late 1520s that Calvin. Is saved. So we'll just put somewhere up here approximately 1525 that Calvin is saved. Then you have 1530. The 1530s, during this decade, the Counter-Reformation is launched against the, the Protestants. And then from 1545 to 1563... The Roman Catholic Church held a council called the Council of Trent, which defined Roman Catholic theology in the context of Protestant theology. And at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church set forth a position that justification and sanctification were both progressive, and they charged the Reformation, the Reformers, with licentiousness. 
And at the Council of Trent, they cursed anyone who did not agree with the position that justification was increased by good works. That is Roman Catholic theology at the Council of Trent. Now, point number eight, the count, and, and well, it's part of, part of point number seven, the, the Catholics at the Council of Trent charged the Protestants with preaching antinomianism and licentiousness. That if you teach that all people have to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, well, they'll, they'll, just, they'll just live like hell. They'll just get away with anything. They'll just go do anything. How can you exercise any kind of moral control on people if they think that all they have to do to be saved is to believe? They'll go nuts. They, they, there won't be any restraint on sin anymore. So they, 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 uh, re, their response to the Reformation was to charge them with licentiousness and antinomianism. Point number eight, to defend against that charge of antinomianism, Calvin, by 1559, okay, before the Council of Trent is over, by 1559, in his last edition of the Institute, says, you cannot possess Christ without being made a partaker in his sanctification. Listen to that. He says, you cannot possess Christ without being made a partaker in his sanctification. In our sharing in Christ, which justifies us, sanctification is just as much included as righteousness. Now, I know that some of you aren't getting this. I mean, I, I remember when I first was taught this when I was taking Romans when I was in seminary. It, this was like, wait, whoa, come back, say that one more time. In Roman Catholic theology, let me scroll it right back here. Justification and sanctification are, are identical. You know you're justified because you see the external evidence of sanctification. That's how you know works are the necessary evidence of salvation. And you, without the works, you're not saved. So now Calvin says, in order to counter the position of, of antinomian, it says, you can't possess Christ, that is, be really saved, without also being made a partaker in sanctification. He's, now he's, he's going to come back, and instead of saying justification is here, and sanctification may or may not necessarily follow, he's going to tie them together. He's not going to make justification progressive, but he's going to come in and he's going to link sanctification to justification and make it inseparable. And he says, so you can't possess Christ without being made a partaker in his sanctification, our sharing in Christ, which justifies us. Sanctification is just as much included as righteousness. Calvin claimed that a person who was truly justified in God's courtroom at a moment in time would most cert certainly, definitely go on to maturity in Christ. That is progressive sanctification, and he too bases it on his amillennial interpretation of Matthew 24:13, that the person who perseveres to the end will be saved. Now, today, point number nine, today this is handled under the concept by most evangelicals, this is handled under the phrase, professing faith but not possessing salvation. They profess faith, but they don't possess salvation. They profess but don't possess. 
You know, you have people who don't have saving faith. They made a profession of faith, but they're not a true believer. They're not a genuine believer. Uh, you know, they add all of these adjectives to, to belief. The Bible never a- puts an adjective to belief. It never talks about true belief, genuine belief, real belief, saving faith. It never does that. Today, they have this idea of professing faith but not possessing salvation. And the key phrase that you will often hear is while we are always saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Let me say that again. While we are always saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Catchy little phrase. What they mean by that is you're saved by faith alone, but if it's real faith, it's going to be accompanied by a certain amount of faith. So both Augustine, point number 10, both Augustine and Calvin taught uh, to go along with this. So point number nine is modern evangelicals handle this in the same way that a real faith is, is accompanied by works. Point number ten now, because somebody's going to say, does that mean that you can believe in Christ and not be saved? Yeah. Now listen, they handle that. Both Augustine and Calvin, this is point number ten, both Augustine and Calvin taught that the non-elect, that is the unsaved, could have a genuine faith in Christ that wasn't saving. Now catch that. They could have a faith in Christ that wasn't saving. See, you, you remember, we've gone over this before. And the passages they go to, for example, they go to John chapter 2, when Jesus performs many miracles, and the text says that he did many signs in Jerusalem, and many believed in his name. In the Greek, it's pistuo, ace, um, which is the standard phrase for expressing faith in Christ. And then the next phrase says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Well, if Jesus didn't entrust himself to them, they couldn't really be saved, because if they were really saved, Jesus would trust himself to them. And it's this naive uh, expression of Christianity that somehow if somebody's saved, and that, that they're, they're, they're going to be necessarily uh, good and worthy of our trust. You know, these are the same people that put out the Christian yellow pages. That just because you're a Christian, it's going to make you a better mechanic or a better doctor or a better accountant or a better lawyer. Let me tell you, you've never been really, really mistreated until you've been mistreated by another believer. See, the problem in, in, in John chapter 2 is that the Jews still didn't understand that the, that the Messiah was coming and it was going to be the cross before the crown, and they wanted the crown before the cross, so they still had a political agenda. They hadn't been sanctified yet. They were saved, but they didn't understand anything beyond the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus wasn't going to trust himself to them because they still had the wrong agenda. And you'll have people come along and scholars and people, pastors who say, yeah, but it's a, it's a faith in signs. And, you know, that's just an inadequate faith. Well, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John was that these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So if signs are the basis for an inadequate faith, then let's just rip John right out of the Bible because it doesn't have anything to do with it. Okay, so Augustine and Calvin both taught that the non-elect, the unsaved, could have a genuine faith, but unless they also received the gift of perseverance, those regenerate believers weren't saved. Point number 11. Calvin argued that this temporary faith was not a saving faith. And here is a quote from, from a Calvin. The central claim of this teaching is that God imparts supernatural influences to the reprobate, 
which approximate but do not equal the influences of effectual calling. Man is illuminated, he tastes, he grows, he has similar feelings as the elect. However, it seems God is deceiving this man into believing he is elect just so God can be more than just in condemning him when he finally falls away. Actually, this isn't a quote from Calvin. This is a quote, a summary of Calvin's teaching from uh, Jody Dillow's book, uh, Reign of the Servant Kings. So that's laid the groundwork for the modern debate. This is why this is so important. This is why it is so confusing for some people is because they come out of a tradition that goes all the way back to the 5th century A.D., all the way back to the early 400s when Augustine wrote, and that theology of his theology of perseverance, that there's a saving faith and a non-saving faith in Christ, uh, was picked up by, by Calvin and was incorporated within the system known as Calvinism under the uh, P known as Pulip, known in Tulip for perseverance of the saints. Now, not all Calvinists and not all Reformed theologians have held that position. In the late 1600s, there was a group of men called the Marrowists in Scotland, and they held to a free grace position and a, a distinction of rewards as, as we hold. And there were others in the, in the 17th century and 18th century and down to the present time. But this has not been the normative position of Calvinism. In fact, in this country, we've been more, most affected by the Puritan theology, which had many positive benefits. This country would not exist. You know, this is, this is sort of the, the um, uh, ironic thing about Calvinism. Calvinism produced a high view of the authority of God and that human governments were all under the sovereignty of God and therefore ultimate authority for right and wrong did not exist in a human king or human government. It is Calvinism that laid the bedrock foundation on which this nation was founded. Without a Calvinistic view of, the, of, of God and the state and God and man, you would never have had this country. But it is Calvinism that, that is the primary influence on uh, the people who came to this, this nation, the Puritans, the pilgrims, the, the settlers in, uh, in Jamestown. Uh, even the Baptists that came here were, were uh, primarily Calvinistic. Nearly everybody in this country in the 1600s was Calvinistic in one sense or another. And, it, and, and when they were working out their Calvinism and, how, and, and their theology, the Bible, and working it out in terms of how does a society uh, reflect the biblical principles of government, of finance, of law and order, that's their foundation. They thought within that framework, and that is also the framework in the, in the 1700s, coming out of what was called the First Great Awakening in the 1740s. So you have this, this almost split uh, uh, approach to Calvinism, the good things that it produced and bad things, and some of the bad things are related to post, post-millennialism, uh, allegorical theology and eschatology, and a number of other things. But their view of man and view of God was foundational for d- the development in the early stages of our nation. Now, having understood all that, it gives us a historical framework for understanding what's, what we've got to ask, the, the answer to the question we have to ask next, and that is what is the relationship of works to faith? See, under the, this Augustinian Calvinistic conception, works are necessary if it's real faith. And you can bet that that's going to cause someone from that background 
to interpret James chapter 2 a certain way. James says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? See, now, as far all we've gotten today is just a nice historical illustra- uh, introduction to the subject, but we can't get in, we don't have time to get into this, and I'm not going to start an exegesis of James chapter 2 tonight when we're almost out of time. So we'll wait and do that uh, when we come back after Christmas. Remember, there will not be Bible class next Wednesday night, which is Christmas, or the next Wednesday night, which is New Year's Day. So we will return for Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible class on Wednesday, January the 8th. Then the week after that, and you'll just have to stay tuned, call in, check the bulletin. The week after that, week of January 13th through the 16th, starting with the evening service on Monday the 13th, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, we'll be having, and everybody's invited, to attend the pastor's conference, and Dr. Thomas Edgar, a Greek professor down at Capitol Seminary, will be teaching. And I'm not sure which nights will be here, which nights will be over at North Stonington, if we'll be there all three nights or here all three nights. We haven't decided yet. But just make sure you have that on your calendar. So that kind of gives you the schedule for the next few weeks. So that means we have... One lesson between now and the pastor's conference after the first of the year, and just hold these thoughts. Now, why are you laughing? Hold these thoughts. Get the tape. Listen to the tape. Hold on to this so we don't, I don't have to review this in another hour before we set up our study of James 2. Now you understand why this is important. Theology matters. You can't just go in there and simply study something because all this prior history has an impact on today. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to understand how you have worked down through history and the uh, the great men that have wrestled with your word and have sometimes taught, taught error, but it is frequently on the basis of their error as well as their truth that we have come to a greater and clearer and more correct understanding of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand uh, the things that we study in your word more precisely, that we may have a greater appreciation for your grace and all that you have done in our salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.